Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Thursday, October 20th. For the last decade, Republican-led states have been more successful than Democratic-led states at drawing congressional district lines to their advantage, the old practice known as gerrymandering. Now, it's possible that more people will vote for one party for Congress, but the other party will win the most seats, a kind of minority rule enabled by the present system. So we will look at redistricting and gerrymandering now as part of our pro-democracy series. There is also an important case before the U.S. Supreme Court right now that might make gerrymandering harder to stop. So we'll touch on that, too. And we're very happy to have with us for this Michael Lee, Senior Counsel for the Democracy Program at the Brennan Center for Justice. Michael, thanks for coming on for this. Welcome to WNYC. Thanks for having me. Can I ask you first about your job and your job title? As we focus on democracy in peril on this show this week and next, what is the democracy program at the Brennan Center, and what does it mean to be senior counsel to a democracy program? Well, uh, the democracy program is one of our major program areas at the Brennan Center, and we focus on all kinds of democracy issues, whether it's fair courts or money in politics or redistricting or voting rights. And, um, you know, right now, um, <laughs> you know, I guess to be senior counsel at the Brennan Center or to be anybody at the Brennan Center right now working in the democracy area, um, you know, it's sort of an all hands on deck moment because we have an election coming up in 19 days. And, um, you know, that, you know, our elections uh, used to be kind of, you know, interesting, but kind of humdrum affairs, and everyone now feels like a high wire act. So um, that's my life these days. <laughs> right. Yeah. So there are parallels between what you're doing and what we're doing. So would you do some basic history for us? Um, I think people have really been enjoying the, the history portions of the democracy series that we're in. How did the country first decide how to draw congressional district lines? Is it in the Constitution? It is actually not in the Constitution. Um, you know, Congress has the power to set rules for how congressional lines are drawn, um, but it really hasn't done much in the area other than require the use of single member districts and, of course, um, you know, require that states comply with laws like the Voting Rights Act. Um, but it hasn't done things that it could do, like ban partisan gerrymandering and the, and the like. And so mostly the the rules for line drawing have been left to the states. And so states use have very different rules for line drawing, and they also have very different processes for enacting lines. So, for example, California uses an independent commission. Michigan also uses an independent commission. But in most states, it's still legislatures who draw the line subject to governor uh, veto. But, you know, it, so it is a very political process in most states, which makes us a bit of an outlier among modern democracies, because in most countries, they have taken the politicians out of the mix and, and have neutral bodies, whether it's civil servants or hmm. bipartisan commission strong lines. And so things wound up so differently this year after the 2020 census in redistricting New York than redistricting Texas, for example. And we'll get to some of that and the implications for the midterms. But are there basic principles of fair district lines that you at the Brennan Center think the country should adhere to? Is there any way for them to be fair to all parties and all kinds of Americans? 
Well, there, you know, I, I think a good place to start is the, the, the standards that were in the Freedom to Vote John Lewis Act, which Congress came close to passing this year. It, it passed the House and narrowly failed in the Senate. And that those include a ban on partisan gerrymandering. So you can't draw maps to favor one party or the other um, to, to an undue effect. You, it also requires keeping communities together. And, and those are those are some good basic rules. But, you know, I think, you know, the rules in some ways are less important than the process that you use to draw the maps. And, and the, the real problem in our system is that we have largely left line drawing the hands of the politicians themselves. And that means that they oftentimes start the process, even if there are rules, they have they have their own unofficial rules, you know, incumbency protection, you know, maximizing the seat for for my party. Um, and those are the rules that that uh, take paramount precedence. And so, if you have a more neutral map drawing process, uh, you you know, regardless of what the rules are, you will end up with fair maps. And that that is what we've seen around the country: commissions draw fair maps, courts draw fair maps. When anybody other than partisan politicians will draw fair maps. By the way, where did the word gerrymandering come from? Well, that comes from. Uh, 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 Vice President Elbridge Gerry. Um, I don't know why we ended up calling it gerrymandering, but his, you know he, he was governor of Massachusetts in the 1810s, and Massachusetts passed a map that many that that was designed to favor Governor Gerry's party. He many people thought that the one of the districts looked like a salamander, and so they named it a gerrymander. And over time, that's been corrupted to be. A gerrymander, but uh, you know, so but that was in 1812. But even before then, you know, the politicians were engaged in gerrymandering. So Patrick Henry of "Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death" fame uh, was governor of Virginia when Virginia had to draw its very first congressional map, and he tried to gerrymander the map so that a man named James Madison couldn't win election to Congress. So even the founding fathers were not immune from the pressures of trying to put their thumb on the scale. Interesting. Let's jump way ahead to 2010. Just like this year, that was a midterm election year during a new president's first term. In that case, it was Obama's first midterm elections. And as usually happens, the other party did really well, especially at the state level. And that's what's relevant here, because the Republicans in 2010 won the majority in lots of state legislatures. And importantly, 2010 was a census year. And we do the redistricting only once a decade after the census. So can you pick up the story of what happened with redistricting in the 2010s from there? Sure. So as President Obama said after the 2010 midterms, Democrats got shellacked in the, the midterms and lost control of a number of state legislatures and governorships. And that um, was bad from a, if you're a Democrat by itself, but it also put Democrats way behind when it came time to draw maps because immediately after that in 2011, states started redrawing maps and Republicans having won these new majorities in the legislature and in the the House decided to try to lock those advantages in. And they, they really... Uh, did that. And so in uh, North Carolina, for example, which had a roughly evenly divided congressional delegation beforehand, the maps were redrawn so that there would be 10 Republican seats and only three Democratic seats. And a state that really is 50-50, where Democrats win statewide and Republicans win statewide, is really a jump ball every election. Similarly, in Ohio, the map was drawn uh, so that there would be 12 Republicans and only four Democrats. And that held all 
decade. And so, um, you know, in, in the South, um, you know, uh, you, you saw similar gerrymandering states like Georgia and Texas in, in the South, as as has often long been the case, that, that those advantages really came at the expense of communities of color. So it, it was one of the most aggressive rounds of gerrymandering in the country's history. Yeah. And so in the following election, 2012, as the Washington Post reported it at the time, Democrats got more total votes for Congress nationally than Republicans did. But Republicans won more seats. They said Democrats got 54 million and something votes. The Republicans got 53 million and something votes. But the Republicans more won more seats in the House and were able to, therefore, have the majority and block lots of the Obama agenda. Is that any way to run a democracy? It, it isn't. And, and, you know, the amazing thing about those maps is that they really would have stuck for the whole of the decade, except for the unexpected shifts that occurred after the election of Donald Trump. You know, when Donald Trump became president, a number of voters who had traditionally voted Republican, particularly white women in the suburbs, started shifting toward Democrats. And that that enabled Democrats to take back the House in 2018, but had the politics of the country continued more or less as they were in the beginning part of the last decade, it's likely that uh, you would have had a Republican House the whole of the decade. And and that is really anathema because you know, we have elections for the House every two years because the, the framers thought as the mood of the people changes, so should the composition of Congress and state legislatures. But because of the way lines are drawn Increasingly, that is not the case. Increasingly, you actually the Senate is a more volatile chamber. You actually know who will win in the House um, just because of the way the lines are drawn. Yeah. And it reminds me a little of the Electoral College where we've seen Democrats win the national popular vote but lose the presidency when George Bush was elected in 2000 and again when Trump was elected in 2016. Are there parallels there? Absolutely. You know, I, I think, you know, if, if the idea is a majority rule that that Oftentimes, it does not happen with the House. If you, if the goal also is, as John Adams said, that that Congress should be an exact portrait, a miniature of the people as a whole, that also doesn't happen when you have, for example, a ten-three map in in North Carolina with ten Republicans and only three Democrats. You know that it, that and if you underrepresent my people of color, you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't fulfill the, the central function of, of what the House was supposed to be, which is you know the very representative chamber, the exact portrait of, of the people as a whole. Um, and, and that's really just because of the way the maps are drawn, because if you drew maps fairly, there would be a lot of competition in lots of parts of the country, particularly in the, the suburbs of the country. And that that just doesn't happen in states like Texas, where, uh, you know, very diverse districts in the suburbs were broken up in the suburbs where they drew rural suburban districts that that stretch hundreds of miles and, and really in an effort to minimize, uh, in, you know, the risk to Republicans. And as we talk about gerrymandering and democracy with Michael Lee, special counsel for democracy to the Brennan Center uh, for Justice. You even wrote a piece this summer as the Supreme Court was overturning Roe versus Wade called, In Many States, Gerrymandering Blocks the Abortion Policy the Public Wants. Now, people have been so focused on the Supreme Court and abortion rights. Where does gerrymandering electoral districts come in? Well, if you take, for example, a state like Texas, which is increasingly a battleground state, there's a good chance that had the 
maps for the Texas House been drawn fairly and not a, a gerrymander that you would have a Democratic House. Democrats came within nine seats of winning a majority in the, a, seat, a chamber with 150 seats. And if you had fair fair maps, it's likely that uh, Democrats could could have already won the House or could win it uh, in the future. But um, as a result of gerrymandering, Democrats have to win almost 50 almost 56, 58 percent of the statewide vote in order to win a majority in the Texas House, which, to put it another way, Republicans can win in the low 40s and get a majority of the House. And, you know, had you had a Democratic House, uh, the the abortion law that Texas passed, the the, the um, bounty law, would not have passed because it, the Democratic chamber would have blocked it, and 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 that's what you would expect in a a state that is increasingly diverse, that is very well educated and suburban, and really you know doesn't have very radical abortion politics, but yet the the legislature that you have there enacts very very radical laws. That is a very different take on Texas than I think a lot of our listeners have heard before. So very informative, very educational. And the Senate is even worse in this respect, which we'll talk about on tomorrow's show. Uh, But staying with the House, here's the good news. I see that both you and the New York Times have concluded that redistricting reforms over the last decade did produce some results. And the new maps that were drawn this year following the 2020 census are fairly representative. Or how would you describe them? Well, overall, the you know Democrats, the House is in play, and 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 Democrats have a path to winning the House. Uh, even in 2022, they're still likely to lose it. But if they do lose it, they have reasonable paths to winning it back in 2024, 2026, and and that is largely due to maps that were drawn by commissions or by courts. Um, you know, right now, if you look at the seats that are competitive in the the House, uh, according to Cook Political or, or you know, other rating services, um, about two thirds of them were drawn by commissions, courts, um, or, or split control legislatures, and only about a third were drawn by you know through Democratic control processes or Republican control processes. And so, uh, you know, there isn't a lot of competition on these maps. Uh, you know, competition really took a shellacking in the redistricting cycle this time. But what competition there is is you know really. Commissions and and court-drawn maps uh, have left the House in play. Um, Assuming that these maps remain in place, you know, it's possible that they don't, you know, states may (laughs) redraw them um, after this election because they don't like how they they performed. But, you know, assuming they Mm -hmm. remain in place, um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, the the House is in play. Texas, which we talked about a minute ago, did some of the most aggressive partisan redistricting pro-Republican for these midterm elections. And by contrast, New York, which a lot of our listeners know, had its whole redistricting drama this year with congressional redistricting thrown out by the state's highest court, forcing the second primary day that we had in August. And that was from districting that was too partisan to favor Democrats. So the court, even though those judges were appointed by Democratic governors um, throughout the maps, and I see you liked what the court did in New York, right? Well, I, I I think the the maps certainly that the that the special master drew in New York are much fairer than the maps that the Democratic controlled legislature drew. The Democratic controlled legislature drew a, a very aggressive gerrymander, really designed to knock out as many Republicans as uh, they they could. In part because Democrats didn't control redistricting in many states, so they had to maximize what they could get in states like New York and Illinois, and they did. 
uh, the map drawn by the special master is a lot fairer. Now, that's not to say that it is a perfect map. Uh, you know, it was drawn under fairly rushed circumstances because we had a primary coming up. And so there wasn't an opportunity for as robust public participation or comment on the maps uh, as as would be optimal. Uh, but the maps are fairer um, by, by almost every objective metric than mm. the, the maps that the Democrats drew. In national context, though, New York Democrats said it was like unilateral disarmament if Republican states like Texas are aggressively gerrymandering for Congress in the Republicans' favor, but Democratic states can't do it because they're blocked by the courts. Is that is that a wrong way to look at it, in your opinion? I, I do think it's a little bit wrong. I, I, I see what they're they're saying certainly you know if if your if your goal is to make sure that your party wins um you know that is not uh good um on the other hand you know in, increasingly what we're seeing is that state courts are willing to step in uh, you know and that includes justices who are democrats justices who are republicans and strike down maps that were drawn by their own party and to police the process and that's really important because the supreme court in 2019 said we're we're not going to do it you know that the partisan gerrymandering is not a claim that can be brought under the u.s constitution but the good news is that a lot of state courts are stepping in in um and using their state constitutions to police abuses. So last thing, and something for our listeners to keep their eye on, where does the Voting Rights Act come in? And this Supreme Court case right now, maybe no surprise that it's from Alabama, which is seeking to enable what you might call white power redistricting. The case is called Merrill versus Milligan. Can you explain the premise and its relationship to the Voting Rights Act? The Alabama case, Merrill versus Milligan, involves whether Alabama has to create a second uh, black district in its rural black belt region, which is a poor uh, rural area in the, the center part of the state. And Alabama says that it does not have to under the Voting Rights Act uh, because it it would violate the state's quote unquote race neutral redistricting principles, um, you know, even though most people think that, you know, um, you know, that those principles should give way to federal law, which requires fair treatment of communities of color. But, you know, it is an opportunity for the Supreme Court, if it wants, to further gut and erode the Voting Rights Act, which has already been carved back quite a bit through a series of decisions, big and small, over the course of the last decade, and really could put people of color and communities of color in a, in a bad place. So we'll, we'll see what the court does. We thank Michael Lee, Senior Counsel for the Democracy Program at the Brennan Center for Justice. Michael, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. Thanks as always. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time. Thank you.